Welcome to the Painter's Dialectic Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Green, a painter and art educator living in New York City. And today I'm joined by moral philosopher Dylan Ahn, and we're doing our final dialogue in the What is Truth series. This is our seventh dialogue in the series, which casually and conversationally explores the field of epistemology. The focus of this episode is exploring the pragmatic theory of truth. We'll be asking questions like, is this truth statement useful to believe? What is the utility of truth? Is the usefulness of truth better than absolute truth? These are some of the ideas that we will be exploring in today's episode. And remember, don't just listen to the podcast, participate in it. Like, subscribe, leave comments, share our content. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can go to our Patreon page and subscribe. You can also support us directly through Spotify. This will help us con to continue creating this meaningful content. If you'd like to check out our Instagram page, it's the Painters Dialectic Podcast. My Instagram is Josh Green Art. And if you'd like to study with me, you can go to greenatelier.art. And if you'd like to check out my website, it's joshgreenart.com. Dylan, it's been a while. It's good to see you. How's everything been? Yeah, going good. Yeah, it's nice to speak to you again after a while. How are you? Doing good. I'm glad I'm, that we're meeting in the middle of the day and not in the mornings anymore. <laughs> glad you're back in London. You're more awake. So yes, that's good. more awake. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's time to wrap up the uh, Truth series. Uh, we're going to cover what I think, you know, the, the save the best for last. This is the pragmatic theory of truth. This is the one. And I think everyone kind of goes, yeah, this makes the most sense after you go through everything. Um, it makes it the most sense, at least for me. So mm -hmm. just to kind of define it before we get in, the pragmatic theory of truth is one that is true if it's useful to believe. The truth in the pragmatic theory is either the acceptance of true beliefs. I think you talked about that in the last episode, the coherent theory. Acceptance of true belief or considering the utility of the truth statement, right? So, for example, a true statement may be those that are useful to believe, right? That, that serve some type of practical function. So pragmatic theories of truth tend to view truth as a function of the practices people engage in and the mm -hmm. commitments people make when they solve problems, make assertions, or conduct scientific inquiry. More broadly, pragmatic theories tend to emphasize the significant role the concept of truth plays across a range of disciplines and discourses, not just scientific in fact-stating discourses, but also ethical, legal, and political discourses as well. It looks like this theory is very American, which I mm. thought was interesting. Yeah, you're the philosopher, so why don't you... <laughs> why don't you tell us more about it? Yeah, so the difficulty with trying to draw the boundaries as to what pragmatism is, is that pragmatists often disagree about 
what it is. And that's very pragmatic of them because they have very different visions of how language or how knowledge is supposed to work and what functions it's supposed to have and what counts as pragmatic and what doesn't. And so you often attribute a view of pragmatism, you might think is pragmatist to a, to a pragmatic philosopher and they would disagree with that label. In fact, some pragmatists, which we would like to call pragmatists, disagree that they are pragmatists. So sometimes you have that sort of funny labeling issue. But the general idea, the general principle of pragmatism is to not think of our knowledge as a way of representing, of describing the world as it actually is, more as a tool to help us live our lives. Right? Mm -hmm. So science to them is not about describing the actual truth with a capital T of the world. It's about predicting phenomena, right? It's about problem solving. It's about helping us get to the moon, helping us fly, doing that sort of thing, predicting what's going to happen, what we could do to put a man on the moon, that sort of thing. And that is quite a interesting and economical view of, of knowledge that benefits, for instance, governments uh, and politics. For instance, nobody genuinely believes that the space race was a purely academic and scientific endeavor for the sake of the curiosity of space, right? <laughs> Everybody knows it's a political decision, and the, the support NASA gained for putting a man on the moon is not purely about scientific discovery and knowledge for knowledge's sake. It's about the race getting of technological superiority of demonstrating the fact that yes we can do this it can solve a lot of our problems that technologically uh in terms of military we are superior it's more about that so the pragmatists say well that's what knowledge is really about if we're being completely honest with ourselves that's what knowledge is about not about the naive correspondence theory where supposedly we're doing this project for the sake of knowledge uh for knowledge stake for, this, for the sake of truth, the capital T. As a result of this, you have these consequential ideas that come out. For instance, they accept the fact that there is more than one way, there's more than one good way, more than one accurate way to describe the world, right? So quantum mechanics and uh, Newtonian physics and uh, general relativity are good ways of, of sort of describing the world. They will never say that they are inherently false. What they will say is something like, one theory is better at describing this type of phenomena, and another theory is worse at describing the same type of phenomena. But alternatively, that other theory might be better at, des at describing this type of phenomena, but very bad at describing others. So they have practical merits. Uh, and that's how they would evaluate a theory, a metaphysical theory or a theory in science. So that's the general idea. A good way of applying that idea would be the sort of studies and sort of work that William James does when it comes to religion. So he, does, he isn't interested, for instance, in whether the belief in God or knowledge in the God's existence represents whether God genuinely exists objectively in the world, that there is this God out there. He's more interested in what the belief in God and the conviction and faith of God does for us. Mm 
So he writes about and he talks about how that despite that God may genuinely not exist in the world, nevertheless, going to church, religion as a social phenomenon, can do all of these things for us and can be helpful in all sorts of ways. If you believe in mystical events, right, and those mystical events help validate, give your life meaning somehow, or you're on your deathbed and you're struggling to survive a, a treatment of some kind, if a belief in God helps you get through it, well, then that belief in God has pragmatic merit, regardless of its truth, right? R regardless whether it reflects a genuine sort of existence of some God in the, in the universe. And so this idea is not necessarily unique to the Americans, right? These, these ideas were fermenting even in, uh, in the UK as a result of Wittgenstein and Bertrand Russell, where Bertrand Russell had this problem, discovered this issue, this interesting issue within logic, is that what do you do with statements and claims that don't signify or denote anything in the world? So a classic example uh, he talks about is the king of France is bald. So there is no king of France. And so the king of France is bald is a meaningless statement by traditional logic because if it denotes nothing, the statement can, is meaningless, right? Because if there's no king of France, therefore the king of France is bald cannot be translated into logic because there's no thing that is the king of France that exists in the world. But what he argues is that that sentence is not meaningless because when I say the King of France is bald, you understood it. It, mean, it meant something to you. And so clearly traditional ways of looking at logic and how it should be translated, how language statements should be translated, require some sort of change in the way we think about it. We need a better language of logic and we need a better system of knowledge to present meaning when it fails to signify or denote anything that actually exists in the world. And so you can see how that is quite in line with pragmatic theory, where it isn't interested anymore in reality objectively, because it recognizes for all sorts of human limitations that maybe we will never get there. That is as impossible as out of our reach. But what really matters, what is really pragmatic in our lives, is whether those statements have meaning to us. And that meaning is what pragmatists might disagree about. Some of them might stick to sort of empirical experiential meaning, where in that for a statement to have genuine meaning, it must have some measurable impact in our lives. So that would be quite a scientific way of looking at things, right? In order for a, a, a phenomena or a piece of knowledge to have meaning, it must be measurable, quantifiable, describable in some way. So I can't write a medical paper, I can't write a scientific paper if I don't have data to justify my claims. Whatever I say must have some sort of means of measuring the impact. Uh, whereas in the humanities, there's less sort of necessity for that. I can say whatever I'd like, even though I have no statistical data to, to back up what I say. So there's like a difference in pragmatic schools. A lot of people like pragmatism because it gets down to, if you'd like, what we are really concerned about in our day-to-day -day life. 
people are less concerned maybe about knowledge for knowledge sake sake or these metaphysical definitional debates about what is a tree what is a cut what is that maybe people are were tired of that sort of idea they thought that it was going nowhere that it was meaningless wittgenstein had this idea that language is just a game and what we think we mean might not actually mean the way we think depending on the context and so the whole philosophical project of trying to define everything, of trying to make definitions reflect reality, is a tireless and meaningless project. And so we've had to change things. And the best way to do it is to make philosophy useful, make it reflect how we live our lives. Mm -hmm. um, Putnam, uh, which we discussed a little bit before, apply this idea to theories of the mind, for instance, where she's not interested in defining what the mind is, but she developed this idea of a functional theory of the mind, what the mind does, right? Mm -hmm. Input, output, right? That's what we are really concerned with, with the mind, not whether it's a soul or it's this or it's that or it's Brahman or whatever. What she... Uh, wants to convey is that at the end of the day, right, when it comes for our practical purposes, the mind is really about what we put in and what we can get out. Mm -hmm. It's a very mathematical view of the mind. A lot of people dislike this notion, right? For obviously some people think that it, if that's the implication, then they think that, well, then one day, then we could call, we could call AI conscious. Right? Because if the mind is just a theory of functionality, then what's to say that AI is conscious? And we, a lot of people resist that idea intuitively. But if you were a functionalist, you'd see no philosophical problem with seeing the mind in that way. And, and therefore, you'd see no problem in thinking that an AI would one day have consciousness and sentience. Because if that's how the way it works, then what's to stop it? Other philosophers who resist this idea might say, well, if it's just about input and output, what about what we call genuine understanding, right? This, this mystical aspect of our consciousness. Uh, and so a philosopher once used this idea of the Chinese room. I think it's uh, a nice idea to illustrate the difference between a human mind and a computer, where you imagine this completely sealed room with this individual sitting in the middle of it, and they don't understand Chinese. Right? And someone slips in a piece of paper that is written in Chinese and they look at a dictionary and they have this formula like given to them and they just match each word to another word and that will generate and output a response. And to the person outside, the Chinese room behaves like it genuinely understands the conversation. It's like having back and forth, it, it's responding in, in such a way. But the person who's really operating the mechanisms is like, does not understand Chinese. And this was supposed to be a thought experiment to demonstrate that there's a difference between input-output systems and genuine conscious understanding of, of, uh, of Chinese, for example. But of course, the story gets more complicated, and one could say that understanding is a really just a more com convoluted, complicated version of the, of the input and output system. If you'd like, the pragmatic idea refuses to sort of give in to this idea that there's something genuinely mystical, genuinely out there. They're not concerned about that sort of thing. 
they might consider this idea that we have a soul, like a you know, to use a to use to borrow a phrase, like a, a ghost in the machine. That's not interesting to them. All they're interested in is how the machine works, right? How should we live our lives? Whether there's a ghost inside, whether the nature of the ghost is one way or another, is completely uninteresting to them, right? They think that we will never get to it because, like good scientists, uh, like good scientists, a hypothesis that you can neither verify or falsify is not a useful hypothesis. That hypothesis may genuinely be real, right? It may be true that the claim God is God exists. That might be a true claim. But because scientifically speaking, there's no means of proving it, disproving it, and if it was, uh, it, there's no experiment we can design for the existence of God, well, therefore we abandon that claim. But for sociologists, it is still interesting to note that, well, we can't talk about God as a metaphysical, metaphysically existent topic, but we can talk about the belief in God as a social phenomenon. And that, what sort of impact that might have on us. All the summary that I've just done, a pragmatist, some pragmatist out there would disagree that that is their position. But generally speaking, that's the sort of ideas that a pragmatist might have or might agree to. So I'm interested to hear whether that, that view is attractive <laughs> to you in any sense. Yeah, I, I like that a lot because... All right, think of it. We're so small, you know, and insignificant. Mm. It's like, okay, say, you know, the little little tree fungi that live under the ground, the mycelia. Say that, you know, where are mycelia? Deep underground, living, passing nutrients mm. between roots and things, whatever. What does it care about the galaxy we're in? Really, mm. it doesn't, it's not even aware of that. You know, all that concerns it is what's around it. But the galaxy may affect it in some way, and, and maybe even the world may affect it in some way, but mm -hmm. it's too small to even comprehend it, and the, the, the galaxy is too big to even know that the mycelia are there. So what's the point? I think humans are in a, a similar situation. We like to speculate about big things. We like to go around, but we're not getting to any absolute truth. I don't know if we can have an absolute truth about the universe, and even if that's going to benefit us in any way. And even though I think mm. you referenced a lot of spirituality, I would say that the pragmatism sounds very spiritual to me because it deals with the good, right? It focuses on what's actually good for us, what's beneficial for me and for you, what beliefs, what truths, whatever we think, what do they actually do? Do they correspond with anything mm -hmm. in our experience, right? So maybe like the concept that God erased with the concept of God, okay, that's mm. just a concept to you. That's just a word. But who was the person, the, the hermit mm. out of the mountains who was meditating for 20 years alone that had the experience of God and named it God, right? That's a person mm. where that entered into their experience in some type of, you know, uh, mystical situation where they decided to name it and you know there's, there's hallucinogens, ayahuasca mm -hmm. these things, people have those experiences, they name those things mm -hmm. and then they become watered down, they become concepts and it's not real but for them it was practical to mm -hmm. name those things 
So mm-hmm. for me, that is more spiritual than most people who claim to be religiously spiritual mm-hmm. because it serves the good. And we should focus on things that are knowable, mm-hmm. right? What's the point in speculating in things you can never verify, right? Although it may be fun, you should focus on what's knowable. If at some point, you know, in your life you begin having mystical experiences, well, it may become a necessity then to become more mm-hmm. spiritual, right? To take on those things. If you're not having those experiences, then what's the point? Why would you do it, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I really like it. I know there's a huge variety. I know that, that pragmatism can get pretty dark sometimes because mm-hmm. one person's idea of what's good for everyone, they try to impress that on everyone uh, instead of treating it on an individual basis, mm-hmm. which I think is more useful than oppressing people under your under your concept of what's good, right? But I don't know. What do you think about that? I think it's difficult to attribute the good to pragmatism because it on on, on some sense it is a epistemological position mm-hmm. but to say that it serves a good would therefore make it become a moral position mm-hmm. so it's equally valid to be a pragmatist and to as you say only be interested in the dark or sort of or some people might consider the evil applications <laughs> of a particular knowledge system for instance when I studied psychology how many years ago, we learned sort of psychological studies about coercion, right? Mm-hmm. What are some psychological studies that to do with, you know, how we make each other human, make each other do certain things, right? We force them to believe and to act in a certain way. And we can do that by providing the right sort of circumstances. And out of it, we're significantly immoral studies, right? The Stanley, uh, you know, prison experiment, the Milgram experiment as classic examples where they, you know, the, they shock, they pretended that to shock people and sort of made participants uh, believe that they were indeed administering shocks to other people and to demonstrate that, you know, authority is a huge coercive influence. Um, the Stanley Prison Experiment is even worse, right? They took sort of random people and then they assigned them the roles of guards and prisoners. And over time, as a result of their ro- roles, the guards became abusive. They did unspeakable things to the prisoners, even though they were not real prisoners. Everybody understood that this was just a role and this was just a game, but it had to be stopped halfway through because it got so bad. And so pragmatically, these are all useful (laughs) studies to conduct, right? Um, Of course, it becomes another moral question is that if something is pragmatically useful to understand, to study, and to take upon, is there a moral limit, right? Are there studies that we should never conduct, right? We will never, for instance, do the Stanley Prison Experiment ever again, right? As, As fascinating as it is, right? We understand that we will continue to learn from that experiment, but we're never allowed to do it again. There's no (laughs) ethics war that will ever allow us to even attempt such a thing. We're not allowed, for instance, to um, cage a child with an animal and watch how a child develops if they were never sort of, if they were put in contact with human beings. We know Mm -hmm. of cases where that's allowed, and we're allowed to do case studies if it's already happened, but it would be significantly more to deliberately and intentionally put a child in that situation. 
And so, but practically, pragmatically, that is very useful uh, to discover, for instance, how much of who we are is due to genetics, how much of who we are is due to the environment, and how much of who we are is due to our own cognitive processes. Uh, and so psychology and psychiatry, the knowledge that we gain from that have often come from severely immoral uh, practices and studies, right? Despite the fact that Nazis conducted and the Japanese conducted horrifying experiments on human beings during the Second World War, scientifically and pragmatically speaking, we did learn a lot from those experiments. We don't like to think about that because, you know, to, to even say the words that some good to have come out of that would be horrifying. But nevertheless, we understood more about how humans behaved and what, you know, and what sort of chemicals, <laughs> right? And what sort of effects that would have on, on human beings. And so that's, so that's quite an interesting um, dimension of pragmatism as, as, you, as you mentioned, right? Sometimes the effects of certain pragmatic views can have moral implications and that is a, di a, a different dimension, a different sort of question. Religion is another huge one. Some philosophers argue that despite religion's sociological benefits, inherently within its design and structure, there's something harmful within it. And so, you know, the four horsemen who <laughs> of atheism have a lot to say about Christianity and, uh, and, and Islam and things like that. Bertrand Russell thought that all religions right, no matter what kind, were flawed in some way because they ultimately attributed their position to some sort of faith. And he doesn't like that, right? He thinks that there's something significantly wrong with that because to do that, to claim to know something based on faith alone is to abandon any hope of, of accepting that you may be wrong, right? And of questioning that position. And so some people will think that despite all the pragmatic benefits of this sort of thing, uh, despite the fact that, the, uh, that a belief in God may generally help you through a diagnosis and a treatment plan, nevertheless, they think that we should just squash that, <laughs> you know, immediately. And so that, that's another moral question. It, it becomes an interesting moral issue what happens if you have an epistemological position and that comes in conflict with a moral position. Mm -hmm. To use an example, there was a show called Afterlife, I think that came out a few years ago, yeah. and the, the main character is an ardent atheist, doesn't believe in God whatsoever. And he visit, he's a journalist and he visits a, a children's hospital, right? And there's a, there's a girl there going through cancer. And she is obviously facing her own mortality. And she says that, you know, if I, uh, if I die, you know, if, if, if I pass away, I will go to heaven and I'm comforted by that fact, right? And she asks the main oh, character, God. do you believe in <laughs> heaven, right? Very tough question, right? And it becomes very difficult to uphold that epistemological position well it's all nonsense and you know it's not it wouldn't be morally right and a lot of people won't think that would be morally right to do that to a child right and so the main character in the end chose to say that he does believe in heaven right so ironically that might be a pragmatic position to take because by saying that he believes in heaven those words might mean one way to the girl but technically to himself he's not lying because he may believe in a kind of heaven that is not the theological Christian Catholic heaven that the girl is imagining inside her head, 
Or maybe the girl doesn't actually believe or doesn't have a, that sort of concept, doesn't have that notion of heaven fully fleshed out anyway. Maybe in her mind, she's just been told that there is a nice place you go to after you die. And if, you're, if you think that, you know, death is going to a nice place, even though that might be nothing, it might be the end of existence, ironically, that might still be a version of heaven. So a pragmatic, pragmatist, you know, individual might say, well, whatever comforts the girl, right? I may say these things, but I may mean another, but as long as what I say has a meaning that has a pragmatic beneficial good effect, then, you know, why not? Mm -hmm. In recent discussions, uh, I've been sort of leading a discussion group and in it, we mentioned the teaching methodology of the Buddha being quite unique. So other religious leaders tend to take the correspondence view uh, when it comes to epistemology. So they say, the world is genuinely like this, right? This, what I say to you, the word of God, is that the world genuinely exists in this particular fashion. The Buddha often makes it clear that what he says does not reflect reality. Right? He often says that reality is something you have to experience yourself and whatever is said, whatever is put through the medium of language and of reasoning and of knowledge, that is already a distorted version of that. So he's not concerned at all with what is actually metaphysical out, metaphysically out there. His only concern is a pragmatic one is to understand the experience of your own suffering and how to cease that suffering. That is the entire project. So whatever he has to say and has to do to achieve that goal, he's okay with. So I think I've mentioned this, uh, told the story before, where uh, there is an analogy where a father who is a renowned thief one day gets a visit from his son who says, you know, Dad, I want to learn your craft. I want to learn your trade. I want to also become a renowned thief. And his father is quite appalled by this, like, why would you want to do this? Are you absolutely sure that this is the sort of life you want to live? And the son says, yes, teach me your ways. And I like, okay, I'll teach you the most important lesson you'll need to know as a, as a thief. And so they go out in the evening, so they go to a, a sort of a mansion, rich person's house, they sort of go over the wall and they find sort of the main storage room, they find a huge chest and he lock picks it, opens the chest and he says, son, go in. And so the son crawls into the chest and he closes the chest, locks it, and then runs away, right? Screaming and yelling that there's a thief in the house, you know, and everybody wakes up, lights get turned on, uh, and the son panics, right? He's in the chest, he doesn't know how to get out. And so people start searching the house for a thief and the one of the security sort of members holds this torch, this lamp, right? This lantern with a, with a candle within it. And he's going around, he can't see any, you know, any thie uh, thieves. And the son thinks of an idea, right? He, he hears footsteps and he sort of makes noises inside the chest, trying to prompt the security to open the chest. And so it's like, oh, there's a noise in the chest. It opens it, he blows at the candle, runs as fast as he can, he goes home. And of course, he's very angry at his father. It's like, why would you do that? You know, what the hell? And I thought you were there to teach me, you know, how to become a renowned thief. And he's like, I've already taught you, right? It's like, what do you mean? Well, you got out, didn't you? <laughs> that is the most important skill you need as a thief is to get out of a tricky situation, right? To think on your feet. And there's no amount of theoretical training and academic, there's no course that can prepare you, <laughs> right? And so whatever, what matters in the end is that you are getting out. And that Zen story is meant to illustrate that the Buddhist methodology is very much that. It doesn't matter what technique he uses. 
what matters is can you get out of suffering? Mm -hmm. Can you live your life in a, in a way, whatever methods you use, to accept your life and to live with peace with yourself? And so, in a way, that's quite a pragmatic position. Um, but that pragmatic position would be the epistemolo epistemological position plus sort of other moral baggage, right? Obviously. The Buddha isn't just interested in epistemology, he's also interested in morality, he's also interested in human suffering and how to do that sort of thing. So I would think that sort of position might be more likened to the, the version, the type of pragmatism um, you're thinking of. I am curious of what the artistic version <laughs> of pragmatism might be. Yeah, it just shows like, I still combine everything you know, for me, the mm. truth, the morality, or even the word useful for me is moral, mm. right? But in the yeah. more academic realm, it's not, right? Yeah. <laughs> it depends on your intent. Um, yeah. So that's really good to hear. Yeah, I think artistically, yeah, you have a goal. You have something imagined, something you'd like to create, and you're going to have to figure out a way to make it. And you don't always know how to do that. And some people go get training, some people don't. And that's what artists do is they figure it out. They find a way, they make a way, right? Really, whatever it gets to the result, mm -hmm. and I will throw in as long as it's not morally harmful anyway, <laughs> <laughs> whatever gets to that result yeah. is, is your method, right? Mm -hmm. Now, does that mean you did it the best way? No, you probably could have done it more efficient. Probably a master artist could have done it more efficient. All that matters mm -hmm. is, is that you achieved something close to what you wanted to create, what you wanted to bring in the world. Mm -hmm. And as long as you can do that, then it's useful and it'll become more useful over time, right? Uh, you'll become more effective as you experiment. I think that's really, I think, uh, pragmatically, mm -hmm. And then as far as maybe it's like artistic intent, did this art object produce the desired result? You know, right. whatever your goal was, did it achieve it? If not, then maybe you need to try something else. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a pretty practical way of thinking about it. I don't, I don't know, does that align or? Yeah, because I'm thinking like when people appraise or critique or sort of talk about art mm -hmm. is undoubtedly inseparable from art the technical aspect of art and once you get into like the technicality beyond sort of someone's intention and what they intended to do judging art inevitably includes some normative notion of how something should have been done mm -hmm. right so cooking is a big one right mm -hmm. so despite the fact you know someone your mother may create the most best tasting dish in the world but she'll never win master chef <laughs> and i find that odd because if it tastes good then what what why does it matter that she's not super skilled enough or she's not using this technique and she doesn't know the terms and that sort of thing but in cooking competitions they do judge you for technique and they test you on technical ability it's not just about what it tastes like in the end, it's what it looks like, how you got to that point, you know, how, what you did, you have to describe your process, what skills you had. And that art, sometimes that's the case, I guess it's academic when you're, you mentioned training, right? There has to be some criteria of suggesting whether a student is doing better or worse, it's not just on 
the outcome. They might create a beautiful piece, but as you say, a teacher might comment on, well, that's not the most efficient way to do it, or no, no, there's a better way. And you have to learn all of these sort of discoveries by previous masters on different ways of achieving that sort of effect. Sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes an effect can only genuinely but be achieved by that technique, mm -hmm. right? And it's up to sort of someone else to discover a different type of way, and that's a possibility. Mm -hmm. um, but if a technique exists already in achieving that that effect, there's very little impetus and very little motivation for someone else to try and discover a different way of a, achieving the same sort of effect. Because if you've already established, right, well, I can do this in this way, why would I try and figure out another way, right? That way might not work. Mm -hmm. um, the lack of experimentation may sometimes mean that we miss out on new effects that we didn't even imagine possible. And so that, that was what the sort of thing that I was thinking, like the correspondence theory, a theorist of art would say something to that effect. Well, okay, if you want this effect, you need this sort of technique and these techniques are in some way better or more efficient or judged higher. And if you do it this certain way, then you are a proper master. And if you can't, right, it doesn't matter if, you're, if your art looks amazing, right? There, if you're, you can't do these things and you're technically you're not, you know, uh, you know, on par with the others. Sports, again, is, is relatively the same as well, right? A lot of people have a pragmatic view to sports. Well, if you win, right, that's all that matters. But there, we always say that there are beautiful ways of winning and really boring ways of winning, mm -hmm. right? So the reason why people love Nadal, right, is because he wins, but he wins beautifully, <laughs> right? He doesn't sort of, it's, it's not, watching him play is not watching paint dry where he's like using really technical sort of eking out these points one by one he has flair and has style mm -hmm. and you watch sort of people who play football as well right watching Messi with the walls completely different like he may not you know score as many goals as someone another football player but there's something about the way he plays mm -hmm. that is different um so I wonder if that is something that is discussed at all in art where there's something about the way people do something that in of itself there's a certain flair of beauty to that that is pragmatically admirable despite the fact that technically that's not the right way to do it yeah yeah of course you know people are very critical you know depending on how artsy you are the result mm -hmm. won't be the end of the investigation the end of the inquiry mm -hmm. right of whether this is a yeah. good artist or not but I'll cover a few things that you talked about. Like one, depending on the medium you're working in, the more important the technical skill is. For example, if you're working with ceramics, it's highly, highly technical, right? Because you may need to know a bit of chemistry and um, how these chemicals are going to work at different high temperatures. You may be painting something green, but it'll turn blue later. So. There's an extreme amount of technical knowledge that you need to have to pull off that medium. And you can always critique technique. You can always teach technique. It's never wrong, you know? You can always improve that. And then when it comes to, like, the art side, the artistic intent, did you achieve your goal? Is that goal having the effect that you wanted? That becomes a little bit more subjective. You know, you may need a big group to critique it to see what's kind of the unanimous 
agreement about it, right? But yeah, the way someone does something and the beauty of it, right? Which beauty doesn't really get talked about in art anymore. It's kind of kitsch mm. now, but I like it. I think for me that reflects a level of consciousness. When you see someone doing something beautifully, it shows a wisdom, it shows a large amount of awareness, it shows uh, maybe a lot of practice, and then the design, the way, what they created is beautiful, maybe because you struggle to even comprehend what has happened, right? Uh, you're, you're encountering a high level of consciousness, right? And so when you see someone doing something that appears effortless, and for everyone else, they can't even imagine getting close to that. That's what you call something that's beautiful, like mastery, mm -hmm. right? This person is an absolute master of the craft. Of course, that's going to get the higher marks than someone who just kind of got lucky. You know, mm. they, they're not very skilled. They don't have a lot of wisdom. They're kind of messing around mm. and they made like one really good piece in their life, right? But it was an accident. Mm. So yeah. The more you love that medium, the higher your standards are going to be, the more artists you're looking at, the more art history you read, the more critical your mm -hmm. eye is. You know, you see a lot of um, new collectors, they just want to buy, like, the flashiest, most obvious thing. And the art people are like, I don't know what, understanding how this is selling so well. Like, glittery mm -hmm. graffiti art with cartoon characters seems to sell very well because um or or like the standard thing you want to make art put a naked woman in it right and then it's mm -hmm. instantly artistic right you know like just stuff like that okay that's for beginner art appreciators right because that's the most obvious thing it's loud it evokes an emotion but if you can paint a white styrofoam cup on a white table in a white room and make that interesting make people mm. sit down and contemplate that then you're then you're good right i don't know that's kind of it's kind of my thoughts <laughs> yeah it sounds to me that for you and i this might not be sort of of you held in in the artistic world that the purpose of art is capture and manipulation of attention so the mastery of art other than its technical sort of aspects is what you can do with someone's attention right you've held someone's gaze but the what what they do with that attention of course is up to them partly up to themselves but also what you put through that medium so yes right putting a naked woman on a canvas <laughs> is very attention grabbing <laughs> right but it's making people attentive if you'd like, for the wrong reasons, <laughs> right? Or for, you know, as you say, a primary level, it's making people attentive for primary, baser reasons, right? So in film, you're looking at, like, really explosion-heavy action. <laughs> it holds attention, definitely, right? Bang, 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 you know, explosions. But it's not anything more than sort of stimuli, mm -hmm. right? It forces your attention, and there's very little else of demand. And sort of other aspects 
of attention would be okay there's attention and then there's contemplation so something's caught my attention in a certain way that makes me think about mm -hmm. this particular thing what i find sort of interesting is that in art and in sport there's always a period that people refer to as the romantic era right they like to point in some particular aspect in history where they call okay this is the era where things were romantic and i find for instance the romantic era of chess to be hilarious because there's this russian <laughs> world champion right the, called mikhail tal mm -hmm. and he plays drinking copious amounts of alcohol right and he doesn't he doesn't make any moves that are technically sound but they're so ridiculous and he forces his opponents to go into these ridiculous mad situations that he all that he manages to come out on top mm -hmm. right even when he's playing against bobby fisher he manages to drag him into this insane situation right making wild sacrifices and he could be a queen multiple pieces down and he'll still manage to checkmate you mm -hmm. and the results speak for themselves he still wins a game but he wins the game in a profoundly different way than for instance a computer like deep blue would win they would the computer would grind you out yeah. right and so people often remark that magnus cost is such a good player because he's a nice combination of both, right? On one hand, he can grind you down like a computer, but on the other hand, he can also make these intuitive plays. And that's why these players, being as brilliant as also make play games that grab people's attention because they make you think, like, oh, how did he even imagine that? Like, there's no rational way of trying to understand Miguel's play, but there's a very aesthetic element to it that allows you to admire it. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that for a very long time, AI and computer technology has made the, the playing of chess a very robotic, systematic, boring, mm -hmm. sort of grinding out mathematical calculation of the game. But as we got better at building computers, and we got to Alpha Zero, for instance, the shift happened where they started to playing aesthetically beautiful again, where it started to make moves that weren't sound to the other computers, sort of boring, but start to play these in what we would interpret as insane moves, but were still mathematically sound. Because obviously it was mathematically sound because the computer evaluates mm -hmm. best play on the mathematics. And yet to us, something that is at the peak of mathematical technical soundness somehow goes back to becoming romantic again. Mm. So someone can be so boring and then get to a point where the boringness becomes sort of romantic again, which I find sort of interesting. But I, I guess this, these sort of things are easier to track with sort of uh, games that are based in some sort of algorithmic, algorithmic system, right? There, there are some quantifying system where we can apply art to Whereas it's more difficult to apply that sort of thinking to paintings, mm -hmm. right? Because you can't, like, certain games are what we call solved, right? Tic-tac-toe is what we would call, like, a solved game. There's no more novelty to a computer. A computer will either win or draw. It will never lose. It's a solved game, right? It's, you can't lose. But chess, for instance, is the unsolved. And art is very far away from solved. I wonder what the if you what the pragmatic view is on sort of AI sort of art. <laughs> so let's say that okay, that the, that now. 
<laughs> and the NFT <laughs> so thing is yeah. fucking, it's dead. It's dead. Yeah. <laughs> so what happens when one day you sort of see it, you see a piece of artwork that you generally find to be amazingly provocative mm-hmm. and attention grabbing in the sprite sort of way that aesthetically beautiful, and then you discover, <laughs> horrified, that it was actually sort of simulated by a piece of technology, a piece of artificial intelligence. Would that? No, it's not. It's interesting to a specific group of people that like mm-hmm. tech and you mm-hmm. know like, but I don't think it's interesting the most art art people Mm. I think Mm. it's just another thing another fad another whatever Mm. I think it'll reach a point where it gets really interesting it depends on why that person's doing it if it's Mm. just like oh this is new I have a chance to like get in and make a profit and like no one's done anything Mm. here then yeah it's not gonna stand the test of time but if someone's like mm-hmm. really considering the AI and really using it in an interesting way, then then yeah, that'll get attention. Yeah. Okay, I think okay. There's something interesting in pragmatism. So, you yeah. said earlier like Wittgenstein, you know, was leading into this, and so mm-hmm. that the problem with truth and the pragmatic theory is that our descriptions of reality mm-hmm. will never be true and so I think I'll mix in some art here now so we like mm-hmm. the romantic chess we like the artists who do things beautifully because they're not solely in the, this cage of the intellect right mm-hmm. they're using more of their mind they're using functions that aren't usually considered sound or safe or whatever right like mm-hmm. intuition and when we reflect on what, like, what is the intuitive mind, it's a mind that just is, just is, it's being, it, mm-hmm. it just does, without words and thoughts. And so artists use that a lot. They're just doing without a thought, a program, a method, mm-hmm. and then the result, they might not have any words for it. It's just you're with it and you know it by the experience, right? Mm. So someone playing romantic chess may care more about the experience of playing chess, doing Mm. something they don't know how to do, and not being critical in the moment, maybe being critical later, accumulating experience, and then later bringing the intellectual. I think traditionally you call that soul, right? This this Mm. art is soulless. This chess mm. player is soulless. That means they solely rely on the intellect, right? Mm. They're not incorporating their whole mind into it. Mm. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah. So I think we've introduced like an extra piece of criteria to like this attentive art where it requires more than the attention of the audience. There's some demand where there must be attention from the author of that particular medium, right? Because of the fact that a piece of AI can't have human awareness of attention in the creation of that piece. There's no dialogue, mm-hmm. there's no communication of attention. It's, one, it's completely one side in this dialogue. And what I'm sort of con- slightly concerned about, pragmatically, mm-hmm. right, to bring it back to criticism, is that emotionally for the audience, that may not matter as much. 
So there was a concern with sort of deep fake AI technology, sort of, I think a year ago, and it's an ongoing discussion where people have started to take old conversation and photos of their passed away loved ones to create yeah. AI simulated versions of that. Yeah. And I could see the emotional appeal in that. And it, I think it would be a very cruel thing to say that you shouldn't do that and that thing is wrong. Because you look at the reactions of people who have lost loves, how could you deny them that, right? In the same way that it would be cruel to talk, to say to that little girl, your belief in God is absolutely <laughs> ridiculous, right? It's a horrible thing to do emotionally. And yet, we, ha we recognize that there's something that is slightly unsettling about that idea, mm -hmm. where we've attached an emotional piece of attention on something that does not reciprocate the attention, mm -hmm. and yet can simulate the attention so well to the point that for them it has a huge emotional impact. There's a film called Her that came out sort of, I think, 10, 20 years ago that speaks of, that talks about like the, the, the main protagonist having this relationship with uh, a piece of AI on his phone. Uh, or, or on, on some device and he discovers a heartbreaking sort of truth that not, not uh, he's always been aware that it's a piece of AI but he didn't mind it like the emotional sort of relationship that he was having was so real to him that it didn't really matter but what broke him was the fact the reveal that the piece of AI was simultaneously holding a conversation with a bunch of other people <laughs> that not only he was okay with the lack of attention but he was not okay in the fact that the simulated lack of attention was not solely towards him, but divided across, you know, other people who were using the same platform. And so there's something quite interesting about the human sort of emotion, pragmatically speaking, that ideally on like a higher level, if you were a connoisseur of a human attention, you would want a purified version, right? You'd want the, a genuine piece of attention. You don't want a simulated version. But of course, another boundary is that ideally, not only do you want a pure version of attention, you also want that attention to be in some way exclusive. Why we often hear people say that, you know, when they listen to a piece of music or read a book or, you know, it's rarer perhaps in painting where it feels like that the author or the painter, that the songwriter was talking directly to me. That somehow my experiences <laughs> was individualized. Of course, they know it isn't true, mm -hmm. but it's sort of like this, fanciful idealistic thing to think about if only it were true it would make this much better there's something that we quite like about this idea of having not only genuine attention but exclusive attention i'm sure that's the case in romantic love as well right we prefer that our partners took us seriously <laughs> but we'd also prefer that they only took us seriously and nobody else otherwise we'd be very uncomfortable about the infidelity and adultery that comes with that uh, we have a phrase in Chinese uh, called PNI, where it's not enough that my partner loves me, but they must love me with bias. <laughs> they must have biased love. Oh <laughs> and, and that's quite a human sort of desire to have. It's, it's, it's very sort of normal. I think it's, it's very um, much part of the human condition to crave attention. Not only the attention that is real, but also one that is exclusive. I think there's a there's a reason why people often talk about if you want to make a particular piece of art form, whether it be YouTube or painting or uh, book or whatever, to ensure that you don't carry within your mind the intention of trying to please everybody. 
And if you target a specific niche or target a specific audience, you're li more likely to, in to increase the chances of them thinking, well, I found someone that I could connect to, mm -hmm. that this piece of medium is engaging with me in a more personal, attentive way. Mm -hmm. Precisely because it's not meant for everyone, right? It's my niche. This is, you know, there's a reason why, you know, the grunge was very, very popular. That the sort of, what they call, uh, the, the not as trendy aspects of art, right? Mm -hmm. The fringe aspects, you know, goth or, 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 or heavy metal. There's something about knowing that this is an exclusive club that I'm receiving a very exclusive type of attention that makes things, you know, if, if you're an economical pragmatist, then you might lean into <laughs> the pragmatic elements of that. It's like, if I make something that targets a specific group that of a specific type of experience, that will sort of make this thing sell better, right? Because it's a, it's, it's a very type, very specific type of experience. That's why you find young adult novels so popular because not only is it, it does it feel like a specific experience it also has the advantage of being a, a unique type of experience that is at the same time not unique <laughs> everybody grows up and yet it feels like you're the only person going through this <laughs> right it is it hits all the right marks where it is simultaneously universal but also feels unique to you like when you break up for the first time, it feels like you're the only person who's ever broken <laughs> up with anybody. What you know factually cannot be true, but it feels like that's the case. Um, and I think, you know, art is sort of, as you rightly say, the critique of art, ideally, you'd like for it to come from a, a genuine attention. It's coming from a place of genuine attention. But it might be more significant to realms beyond art as well, right? There's something, I recently heard something that's quite interesting. And it, it, it's not necessarily commenting on religion, but it's commenting on like a fictional character. The fictional character is sort of like a religious figure. There is a popular TV series in the UK called Doctor Who. And it features uh, the, you know, the main character as an alien who has multiple reincarnations, has multiple lives. And one of the complaints that his companions, right, that he, so the friends he makes along the way, is that there's, you can't really have an intimate relationship with someone like that because they're so old, right? They have a version, they have a, a version of time and a version of morality and a version of compassion that is so universal. You can't expect individual attention from someone like that. Like you cannot, you can, you can't expect biased love, right, from a Jesus type figure. It would be impossible to have a personal romantic relationship with Jesus because his concern is love for all, for humanity. And so there's an interesting element where a lot of people would actually find this type of person unacceptable to 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 engage in a romantic relationship. And they talk about this, um, you know, on Chinese social media as well about this idea of, you know, partners you should and should not pick, right? Mm -hmm. One type of partner you shouldn't pick is a person who has too much compassion, right? Because they have too much love, <laughs> right? They will never prioritize it. The problem with that is that not only is the individualized having attention not possible, but it's also justified, which is worse. <laughs>
right? You can't demand that they that they love you with bias because you know that that would be not the moral thing to do, right? And so I find that very very interesting as a as a pragmatic <laughs> phenomenon. It's like what happens then, <laughs> right? What 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 do you like? It seems like there's a no win situation. There's a conflict between what we might like. Uh, our demands for attention and what happens when that attention is pushed to its moral sort of uh, brink, right? You have a person like Jesus, a religious leader, right? Someone like Buddha, right? Classically within the Buddhist system, if you are to embark on a life of spiritual awakening and compassion for all, you do end up giving up the notion of a family and a household, right? You have to... It, it becomes impossible to prioritize an individual in life when you've increased your awareness of boundless love <laughs> to everyone, right? And so there's something uh, that makes uh, the Buddha an undesirable partner, despite all of his <laughs> wonderful qualities. His attention is, is, is not exclusive, which I find a fascinating comment that someone has made. Uh, I wonder if, I don't know if art has... A similar problem where it's like this this art is so universal <laughs> that you know i don't feel like it's for me <laughs> specifically it's so um you know but i guess there's there's something about that maybe with popular forms of art i think people who who the more specialized and the more technical and the more you know about a particular art form mm -hmm. the more likely that a person doesn't consider popular art to be mm -hmm. as good as everybody's. There's like a natural inclination to go, well, it's popular, therefore it's not good. <laughs> yeah, I think this more has to depend on um, the ego of the person, mm. the ego of the person who's viewing the art, the ego of the person in the relationship, or whatever you're mm -hmm. talking about. If, if they're, you know, one of the mycelia underground mm -hmm. in this root system that believe that they're very special, that they're a unique individual, mm -hmm. then of course they want exclusive. You know, this might be the mm -hmm. kind of person who spends their day looking for the most niche mm -hmm. artist that no one's ever heard of before. And like, yeah, that yeah. was so cool. I found this guy, right? <laughs> or... Yeah, an underground. <laughs> or like performance art is yeah. perfect. People who like performance yeah. art, I was there the only moment that this was ever performed. Yeah. Or people like improvisational yeah. jazz or whatever. You were yeah. there in the moment. You were a part of it, right? Exclusivity. Yeah. Now, yeah. you know, there's different... I've met a lot of very, you know, advanced spiritual people who have a unified sense of ego. They're like, you're having mm -hmm. a lived experience, I'm having a lived experience, what's the difference? Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. We're all mycelia here. We're all doing this thing. So for them, making something universal, like, um, I think a lot of the music of, like, Beethoven, whatever, mm -hmm. can affect anyone. So, like, he got so deep into the human experience that... His music resonates with pretty much anyone who hears it. They'll have an emotional response. That could also be a very huge, exp uh, a huge success. So it gets so subjective, you know, on the person who is qualifying this and that as successful or not successful depends on them, really. That's the point. There is no, like, real ground truth in painting. You know, there is no ground truth in aesthetics. It's more 
I think, pragmatic, more useful, depending on the viewer, right? Mm -hmm. Even if you tell someone, like, this is great art, you should appreciate it, they generally mm -hmm. might not appreciate it at all. They might really like the glittery graffiti art. That mm -hmm. may be the greatest art to them. They may not like, you know. Yeah. I, I hear a lot of people go, why is Simona Lisa good? Like, mm. they, they, they can't see, like, what's good about it, right? Um, yeah. So I think, I think aesthetics should be kind of pragmatic, but yeah. you should listen to people uh, with more developed taste because they can mm. expand your awareness, right? That's probably the only way. If you if you're fine with with whatever your glitter your glitter painting, uh, then you're mm. good. <laughs> yeah, I think it's less to do with the object of attention and more to do with the quality of attention. Yeah, like there was like a, a a satire of this of this in the culinary world, like the, in the film The Menu, right? The idea that as long as you pay attention, like a burger is fine. You don't have to have this weird yeah. <laughs> culinary sort of experience. I think a good place to sort of end, to wrap it back, is I suddenly came to mind this comment from Hobbes when he speaks about the Leviathan. He says that we suffer, right? Something to the effect of that we suffer a lot more than bees because bees lack the ability and the capacity to reason, right? And to sort of modify that idea a little bit, right? The difference is that not necessarily in just specifically the capacity to reason, but we have the ability to modify our attention, right? We're not forced to be attentive to just the hive and to collect pollen and that sort of thing. We are able to manipulate our attention. And perhaps that's one of the reasons, as Hobbes points out, why we suffer more than bees. But it's also as a result of that, that we get to do greater things than bees, right? We get to make <laughs> art, we get to, you know, do all this sort of thing, and it's like at the cost of having that ability, of course, is to suffer. But as a result of it, you also get to create great things. And so I don't think we can, we have to shy. Of course, we're trying to sell and promote this idea that critical thinking and being attentive is a, is a good thing at the end of the day. It's a morally good thing. But I think it's also important to point out that it will, on some degree, as you say, make you like things less, make things a little bit more complicated, make things a little more painful to you as a result of having of being more attentive, right? Maybe if you learn more about art, you'll end up enjoying the glittery thing less. And <laughs> yeah. you might think, well, that's, that might be quite painful, yeah. <laughs> right? But what we're trying to say is that despite that, right, what you get out of it is probably worth more than sort of the sort of basic enjoyment of, of the glittery stuff. What you may get more of it is a different type of appreciation and attention for the glittery stuff. You might be able to tell why you liked <laughs> the glittery stuff other than just say, <clears throat> I like the glittery stuff. Right? I think it's perfectly, you know, consistently pragmatic to also have a coherent appreciation of, you know, trashy, you know, quote unquote trashy stuff. Right? <laughs> It's perfectly, it's perfectly, you know, compatible to enjoy Michelin star restaurants and your local burger place, I think, and to have an equal amount of attention to those things. Yeah, as someone who only likes, yeah. you know, what's considered high stuff, mm. you might go, yeah. okay, this guy's putting on a show. This guy wants to, like, yeah. be perceived in a certain way. He doesn't actually care mm. about this, right? Mm. And then... 
someone who's just interested in experiences, they may like going to hear the orchestra, and they may like listening to the guy in the subway, you know? Yeah. Uh, I think that's cool, you know? It's just experiences. Mm-hmm. There's something nice about just getting a, a gritty sandwich, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, just, or a pizza slice on the side of the road, you know, like... <laughs> I could often, I'd, I'd much rather do that most times than go to a really nice dinner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but anyways, um, mm. okay, we did it. We did the truth series. Yeah. We're free from this now. And mm. I think we'll go into meditation and some more Buddhist philosophy and whatever. I'm, I'm tracking all kinds of stuff. So Great. Yeah. That sounds good. All right. So thank you to everyone who listened today. Be sure to like, subscribe, leave comments, share our content, and uh, remember to be critically creative.